y'all. Welcome back to episode six of Holler Back. We have Mr. Shane Barton with us. And today we're going to be talking about downtown revitalization in Appalachia and just getting to know Shane a little bit more and all the awesome work that he has done and will continue to do. So I'm Stacy. And I'm Michael. And we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. So um, as I said, we have Mr. Shane Barton here with us. And Shane, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, you know, like you said, my name is Shane Barton. Uh, currently, I'm the Downtown Revitalization Coordinator uh, for the University of Kentucky's Community and Economic Development Initiative of Kentucky, otherwise known as CEDIC, C-E-D-I-K. Um, but before that, I, uh, you know, I was at the Appalachian Center for many, many years. But really how I found my way into this is I'm, I'm just a normal, normal kid from the coal fields of southwestern Virginia um, who grew up kind of splitting my time between the Bristol metropolitan complex, if you will, and, and Dickinson County, Virginia, where my family was from. And um, so, you know, I, I grew up sort of split between both of those worlds, even though Bristol isn't that crazy, but it's definitely a metropolis compared to uh-huh. all communities like Hayside, Clintwood, Virginia. Um, and, and, you know, growing up in, in Bristol and sort of having that experience, I knew um, that I wanted something a little bit bigger and more dynamic as a college experience. Um, so, so in high school, I decided I, I wanted to go to the largest urban institution I could and still be in state so I could afford it and my family could afford it. And and I chose Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU in in downtown Richmond. And really from the first visit, I fell in love with the city. And not that Bristol doesn't have sidewalks. I didn't grow up in a neighborhood that had sidewalks. Um, You know, the first place we lived was, was essentially a trailer park. Um, you know, you don't have sidewalks. And then we lived in, a, eventually my parents bought a single family home. You didn't have sidewalks. So it was that moment when I, I really, like this interest in urban things really sparked for me and, and what that meant for small communities where I was from in Appalachia and, and stuck with it through, through college and um, got a degree in environmental science and then another degree in urban studies and geography. Uh, so I came out of undergrad with two degrees and really thought that my calling was going to be in environmental planning, uh, sort of in that realm of community development. And I knew there was lots of opportunities around water quality, in particular in my lands uh, in Appalachia. So I, after a short stint with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation as an environmental educator, uh, I came back to the coal fields in Virginia to be a watershed development coordinator as a VISTA. Uh, and did that for a couple of years. And that's really where I cut my teeth as a community development person, uh, whether it's urban planning or environmental planning or just engaging people. And, and that really sort of set me on a path to go back to grad school uh, for urban regional planning. And then soon after uh, my fiance then and, and now current wife started to look for places to move to. And, and I had explained that my network was in Appalachia, uh, she asked where that was, <laughs> and the rest is history. She started positions, and, and now um, she's a, uh, a tenured professor here at Berea College uh, in the theater department. Um, so she, she, she actually relocated, and I followed, and then the rest is kind of history. Well, that's awesome. Um, I remember growing up, and I, too, wanted to be um, – an urban planner for the longest time. And then 
actually that was my plan when I got to college and I'm one of those and it's still on the cards for me you know it's still on the table um and so when Dr. Engel, you know, because this is an independent study, and so we sat down and we were like, okay, you know, who are some people that we want to reach out to? She was like, you've got to talk to Shane. And so um, whenever I found out and like looked at your CV and stuff and found out that you were an urban planner, I was super, super into that. So it's really interesting to hear like, because we have similar backgrounds, you know, really growing up in places that don't have sidewalks. And it's something that you don't really think about. Um, and I joke all the time. It's like um, there was something in my mind and this, I don't know if this says something bad about me, but there was something in my mind that clicked when I could go get a Slurpee uh, on a Sunday morning uh, and walk there and walk home. And that was not an experience that I had ever, ever partook in in Appalachia at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's a weird phenomenon because it's something that you don't really realize if that makes sense, until you have those. Um. And, and I'll, I'll tell you the other thing that, that struck me when I uh, moved to the city, moved to Richmond. Um, the more I was there, the more I realized that we were very, very similar. That the things that I was learning in an urban studies program that for the most part is really focused on densely populated big cities and, and how do you work with people in place and space. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that Many of the issues that, that urban uh, residents, in particular people of color in downtown cities around the country face in terms of agency, the ability to, to change their lives, to the ability to sort of have their voices heard, um, is really similar to the Appalachian rural experience. Um, so I, the more I got into it, the more I realized that the two places that I really loved, even though the landscapes were really different, were really similar at the heart of it. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if, you know, because I think that people in Appalachia have a little bit more of a worry about job security just because of, you know, the exploitation with coal companies and things like that. So were you ever worried about job security as pursuing, as you were pursuing an urban planning degree? Most certainly, uh, because let's be honest, uh, a lot of planning is sort of predicated on policies and structures that local communities are willing to implement. You know, and a great example is zoning. You know, around planning um, does relate to zoning and where things are situated in space and, and on the land. Um, and when, when, you know, most of the communities that I had experience in growing up didn't really place much value, uh, and if anything, may have had a sort of a, a rivalrous relationship with the word zoning. Um, you know, the, the freedom, right? You can't tell me what I'm going to do to my land. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I knew that that was going to be tough, and I knew that a lot of communities don't have community planners, in particular small places in, in southwestern Virginia, eastern Kentucky, northeast Tennessee, that sort of area where I wanted to be. But I knew that there was a lot of sort of nonprofit community development work, a lot of planning, um, even if it's strategic planning for nonprofits. Um, so I knew that there were opportunities in that realm, which is really where more of my passion was, was working directly with people to, to help shape and articulate the, the solutions and futures that they had in their minds. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew that there would be a place for that. I, and I also knew that my title may not be planner or it may not be an urban planner or city planner 
and I'm fine with that. Uh, I've actually never had that title. Um, and and I'm, I'm completely cool with it because I've gotten, I've really gotten to do some really awesome projects working with some amazing folks. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Uh, Hazard just recently. And by recently, I mean, it's probably around the year and a half mark that she's been, um, in her position now, but they just recently hired a downtown coordinator. And, and Bailey is awesome. I love her. Um, I was telling her the other day, cause I shared an office with her last summer. Um, when I was an intern and for hazard and she, she's phenomenal. Just everything she does at her job and she's, she's got the Midas touch. Everything she touched turns, turns to gold easily. Um, and I was telling her the other day because I used to want to be a city planner. And so, you know, that job title when hazard didn't have one, I always imagined it with my name on it. And I was, I was telling her, I was like, you know, I used to want to be what Bailey is and, I kind of still do, but Bailey's too good at her job, so I might just be an assistant. I might just be Bailey's assistant as a profession, and that's okay with me. So there, there are worse jobs to have. I agree, one hundred percent. Bailey has been a great partner, uh, and, and lots of the folks there in Hazard have been a great partner with some of our downtown revitalization efforts. Yeah, um, we're hopefully trying to get back up to that title of Queen City of the Mountains. We've kind of fallen behind in recent years, but but we're trying to pick back up where we left off. So one thing that I'm really interested in um, is, you know, what do you do on a day-to-day basis pretty much? <laughs> you, know, you know, you can, you can brief it. You can. <laughs> and the, the reason I laugh is because um, there, there's not a good answer for that because I, I will be honest, my day-to-day is different every day. Um, it, it really is. Uh, you know, here recently, I, w- I will say that my schedule has drastically changed since COVID. Um, and over the last seven weeks, you know, while working from home, we've pivoted. Um, so the last, you know, six, seven weeks, I've, I've really spent most of my time working on a downtown business stimulus fund that had been organized uh, through a partnership with the University of Kentucky SEDIC program, the Appalachian Impact Fund, which is housed at the Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky there in Hazard on Main Street, and the James Graham Brown Foundation, along with Invest 606. Um, we, we started a substantial uh, stimulus fund uh, with you know close to half a million dollars in it. So that's really where my time is spent recently. But before that, um, sort of my typical day, um, would be managing contacts, reaching out to partners on the ground, uh, providing technical assistance, um, supporting them uh, through their access to available programs that we have um, uh, through the downtown revitalization program. And, and I could go deeper into that. I think it, it, it may sort of provide a little bit of more context if, if I were to sort of talk through what that, that uh, program really is. because. Um, you know, I, I think there's so much going on um, and it is so multidisciplinary and there's so many partners at the table that a lot of my effort really is sort of coordinating that, you know, not telling people necessarily what to do, but making sure everybody's kind of on the same page, that we're moving in the right direction, um, that we have some aligned values, that we're operating from some of a similar place um, in terms of uh, our understanding of what we're doing and where we're going. Yeah, for sure. So you're kind of like a a middleman and a liaison between everybody to 
make sure things are yeah, yeah running smoothly. So, well, that's awesome. Um, Michael, do you want to ask the next question that we have? Yeah. So talking more about past work experience and what you've had going on the past few years, Stacy and I were looking through your CV and we noticed a presentation that we thought was pretty interesting and we just wanted to learn a little bit more about, but um, the presentation on downtown revitalization in the promise zone. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what that presentation was about? Oh, I sure can. And to be quite honest, this is a perfect segue because that that's really what I was referencing just a moment ago. Um, so, so for the last three years, and this is really the project that drew me away from the Appalachian Center at UK uh, and gave me an opportunity really to get back into a planning mindset. Um, at the Appalachian Center, I was more of a, a program coordinator, assistant director, uh, engagement person. Uh, but this this new position at SEDIC as the downtown revitalization coordinator gave me the opportunity to get back into planning. And so the way that played out was SEDIC uh, had received a, a substantial grant from the Appalachia Regional Commission, one of the power grants, to focus on downtown revitalization in the Promise Zone. So the Promise Zone, if you're not familiar, in eastern Kentucky are the eight counties in southeast Kentucky that are really the most heavily impacted uh, by the shifting uh, and dramatic changes in the coal extraction economy. Um, so these are, you know, places like Clay County, Bell County, Perry, uh, Letcher, Harlan, um, Knox. Uh, I, and I may be overlooking one or two in there as well. Um, but the way that this program was set up and, and really what that presentation entailed was a, a description of this multidisciplinary approach. So really the way that, it, that, that we focus on this work and, and sort of direct it um, is we have a couple different buckets of things that are happening. Uh, for example, one of the things that we really want to try to do is establish a downtown network, uh, a, a coalition of people, if you will, uh, who are really vested in supporting their downtown and reshaping or continuing to shape what the future of their downtown is. So in each of those communities, we sort of curate, collect, and, and invite stakeholders to, to join these conversations. And it includes people like street directors or downtown coordinators. Uh, oftentimes the chambers are in, at the table, sometimes local uh, city government or county government, independent businesses, other nonprofits, uh, the like. Um, so we, we have developed a network there. Uh, then one of the other things we start to do is deploy the programming that, that already exists uh, within our team at SEDIC uh, for folks to be able to access. Now, many of these programs are fee-based, uh, so this grant really has allowed us to offer them for free. And, and probably the most popular is our First Impressions program, uh, which is really awesome. So if you're, if you're familiar with a secret shopper campaign, or a secret shopper uh, at a retail store, you know, where you may go in and do some shopping and, and then you report back, you know, like how your experience was. Mm -hmm. well, we have a program at SEDIC that does that for your whole community. We will send volunteers into your, into your community. They spend the entire day. You don't know they're there, uh, uh, but they will, they'll, they'll interact with folks. They'll visit the tourism center. They'll go into businesses. Um, they do internet research, like as, as if they're going on vacation and then they report back. And we pull all of that together and provide uh, feedback to that local community and then uh, really facilitate a forum that allows folks to come together uh, to maybe start planning some solutions to things that come up. So that, that, that's really awesome. It's low-hanging fruit. 
program that we offer as part of this multidisciplinary approach is a business retention and expansion program. Again, it's usually a fee-based program that we're able to offer for free for the participating communities. Um, and that really is a, a, a volunteer uh, assessment program with business owners. And, uh, so they, they do a survey. Uh, and again, we, we help analyze it, bring all of the data together and provide a, a forum and a report. Um, and what that, doc, what that document usually really focuses on is what's it like to do business here? Uh, are, there, are there particular things that make it difficult, things that, that we would like help with, uh, policies around the, you know, what the city's doing, those sorts of things. Um, and then if there are critical issues, we're in a position to be able to uh, connect them with some other folks uh, that can provide direct assistance. So it, it sort of starts to touch on a lot of different things. And then as a part of that, we also have a youth engagement program. So we add that youth layer to get them yeah. about, you know, what's it like to, to, to live in a, a town and think about that as a city environment. So we have a team with, with my colleague, Ryan Sandwick and, and Mercedes Manis, who do amazing things when it comes to inspiring young people to think about the design of their city. So we've, we've had young people take us on walking tours of their downtown and tell us about the things that they notice or that stick out to them. Because let me tell you, a 12-year-old experiences their walking environment way different than we do as an adult once we get into a car. Uh, there's a different feel. There's a different vibe, right, when you're walking into places as opposed to when you're zooming by it looking through windows. Um, so, so we start to engage a number of different types of people, multidisciplinary approach here. And then uh, one of the other pieces related to the financial, right? Because we get all these ideas, but how do you actually implement them? Right. And we, know that, we know that local budgets are strained. Uh, they don't always have the capital to invest in the things they want to do or know that they should be doing uh, because they, there's so many priorities uh, at the local municipal level. So we also, working with the foundation in, of Appalachian, Kentucky, there in Perry County, we help communities start to think about uh, creating affiliate foundation funds um, so that they can start collecting and creating repositories of local philanthropy. Uh, again, you know, one of the things we know is that there's a huge transfer of wealth happening currently in Appalachia. Uh, like Ross Perot said way back long ago, you can almost hear the money leaving Appalachia. There's a sucking sound, right? Uh -huh. So part of this is how do you recapture a percentage of that and reinvest it locally? And, and one of the great results is, is with the help of Sandy Curd at the Kentucky Highlands Innovation Center, um, we have been able to... Um, We've been able to create a, a large regional footprint with a new foundation, the Upper Cumberland Community Foundation, and they're already doing great work. Um, so that, along with a, a, a large design and aesthetic piece, uh, so again, my colleague Ryan Sandwick, our landscape architect, really supports communities thinking through um, what's the built environment like? What's the public spaces, the public realm? What is it like to navigate the space on foot? Is it accommodating? Do we have enough light? Is it aesthetically appealing? And does it function right for people? Um, like we say, uh, humans are the indicator species for a downtown. And the more humans you see walking in a downtown or circulating, the healthier that ecosystem is. And the more people we can get enjoying these spaces, the better we all are, at least pre-COVID. That's one of the things. We don't know what this future is going to mean as, as we're trying to attract people back to these spaces. But then we top all of this off uh, with uh, some direct support through other partnerships. 
where we can provide technical support around kind of technical issues, whether, you know, folks are thinking about specific brownfields redevelopment or need to, to try to reach out or, or get architectural or engineering support for a building or, or those sorts of things. So really, uh, that presentation was, was really kind of an explanation of this whole program because there are so many moving pieces sort of colliding and working in, in partnership on the ground uh, in, in these 12 to so uh, downtowns in the Promise Zone. Yeah, so it seems like y'all have kind of a, a hand in every pot in the kitchen, um, which is awesome. And have y'all um, done the project where you send the five people to Hazard yet? We have. Okay, so I thought so because I remember hearing something about it, and um, it it lit a fire under some people. So I think that we've seen some, you know, lit a fire in a good way, like really motivated them to do more for our city. So they, they there are, are, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Hazard has already started to address things that came up in the first impressions, and one one of the things, if I'm not mistaken, was. Uh, the lack of wayfinding signs. So, and, and what we mean by that are those signs that you see in communities that direct you to the special places. Um, you know, like where's the tourism office? Where's the local parks? Uh, importantly, where's the public parking if it's available, right? Um, so I remember in Hazard, there were a lot of folks that that was one of their challenges. And Bailey uh, has actually been working with their local stakeholders and our colleague, uh, Ryan Sandwick, to actually develop that series of wayfinding signs as a part of uh, some grant funds that are available. And I should add that, that one of the great pieces to, that, to the Promise Zone Downtown Revitalization Program is that all of those participating communities have access to about fifty dollars to $60,000 in funds that they can then uh, invest in their downtown through things that are exposed or prioritized through each of those pieces that they uh, participate in. That's awesome. Um, I forget the name of the the bike trail that runs from one coast to the other in America, but I remember last summer I had to, one of my um, jobs as an intern was to go with the other two interns and kind of drive the that route and like in my car and record it on a dash cam um i ended up getting lost i've never been in that part of perry county and you know at one point i put in my gps perry county courthouse and it said that i was eight hours away um so i just sent a picture to my boss luke blazer i just sent a picture of me crying to him and i was like I quit, Luke. Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, the, you know, the, uh, I think that's, I may have it wrong. It's Route 76. They may call it the Bicentennial Bikeway or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it actually comes right through Berea. So we often see folks here in town um, with their bikes loaded down. Um, but it, they, it also goes through the coal fields of Virginia uh, where my parents' home place is and, and where I still own my family's home place in Dickinson County. It goes right by the Brakes Interstate Park, uh, you know, in Pike County and Elkhorn City. Uh, and I have, while I have never ridden it, I've driven it on a car. Mm-hmm. I can imagine pumping up some of those mountain inclines in far western Virginia and eastern Kentucky. You and me both. I remember driving it. I would just, I was talking to the other two interns and I was like, what would make people do this? Um, <laughs> You know, I will say there are also a lot of loose dogs uh, that I want to contend with. And chickens, loose dogs and chickens. So um, (laughs) be very weary of that. 
Um, and you know, another thing about the the free public parking, I think that something, and it may not be this way in all of Appalachia, but especially in Hazard, I was kind of spoiled, you know, when I started driving because everywhere is free parking pretty much, you know. Um, if you could fit your car there, you can park there. And so moving to Lexington for undergrad, I have for sure gotten my fair share of parking tickets. And well, you know, let, let, let's talk about parking for a second because okay. uh, par par I think parking is one of those fun topics. It, for me, it's fun. That sounds crazy. Yeah, no, now no. that I say it. So, so parking is one of those things that every community thinks they have a problem with. Um, every, every community, no one's immune. Uh, we never have enough parking. That, that's just something anecdotally that we always hear. Um, and it's something that city planners, urban planners, downtown coordinators think about a lot. Um, and what we have found often is that there's usually enough parking. There's, there's, I'm going to say there's almost always enough parking. And what we are unwilling to do is to walk um, or to take that two or three block challenge uh, and find parking. We always want we always want to park right in front of the store. Uh, the other problem we have is that you know a lot of times store owners also want to park right in front of the store, not really leaving space for their customers. Uh, but what I, what I would remind is that if you take your closest big box retailer, I'm not going to name them, but you know what they are. Mm -hmm. You overlay the outline of that store and its parking lot over any downtown in Eastern Kentucky. And if you're willing to park halfway in the back of that parking lot and walk to the milk and then walk out, you basically walked three blocks. And if you're willing to do that on a weekly basis, there is no reason you shouldn't be willing to do that when you go visit your favorite places in your closest downtown. And I will, I'll also say that if, if there's something awesome happening, say a music festival or your local uh, spring fling or whatever it may be, you're more than willing to park away and walk into it. Because mm -hmm. you know that it is such an awesome time, you're going to walk to it. And we always remind people that park more parking is not the solution. Uh, that, that more attractive uh, places that actually draw people, that places where people want to be uh, in places that people love, that's the answer. Yes. Um, and I love that because, you know, whenever you put it in that perspective, it's so true. And maybe people don't want to necessarily, I know that I've heard complaints of, you know, not parking in the parking structure because we have that big um, concrete parking structure in our downtown. Um, people not wanting to park there due to maybe the homeless population or, you know, and it's just like, and Bailey's so funny. She actually one time measured how many steps it was from the parking structure to the courthouse. And so she was like, you know, she like did the math and she was like, this is how many steps it is. And you're, you know, walking that at Walmart. And so. Yeah. I, and I don't, I don't even, I don't even look for street parking in hazard. I go straight to the deck. And I know anywhere downtown that I need to go to, I'll walk there. Um, but no, I, I do understand. I, I think some folks do have uh, safety concerns, right? Uh, if, if there's folks who are sort of loitering around, uh, maybe looking a little unsavory, like they may be up to something, you just never know. And I, and I think people do have sort of latent fears around that, um, wherever you are. Right. Um, which is also one of the, the reasons that thinking about the way we interact in our public space is important because lighting 
uh, and safety and the way we feel is a part of that. It's a critical part of that. Um, so it, it all goes hand in hand, but, but no, I agree. Uh, the, the, the facilities there in hazard, uh, a lot of communities wish they had that. I will be honest. I feel like this episode hazard is getting so much love and I'm here for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I, we, we can shift. I can give, I can, I can direct some love, you know, in other places. <laughs> no, please don't. I'm, you know, I'm for that. Michael is actually from, um, Johnson County. So we don't hold that against him here. But hey, we, we, we can we can talk Johnson County too. <laughs> we, we keep it in mind. Um, but you know, I think that issues in Appalachia um, are not I'm, I'm, I'm a person who doesn't always feed into the stereotypes about Appalachia, but I'm also not a person that turns a blind eye to the issues in Appalachia. Um, so I think that the issues that we face there are, you know, not necessarily unique. You know, I think that everywhere females walking alone at night through downtown, they're going to be scared, you know? And so, um, and, and I, th I think additionally, you know, the, the, the more recent incident, the, the violent attack there in, in hazard or in Perry County, I can't remember if it was downtown or close to it. Um, over the last few months really shook some people too. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But I think, I think you're right. Uh, there are things that hold true everywhere. Um, and, and that is, uh, you know, women by themselves uh, can be targeted. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons that, that we have to have those perspectives at the table uh, when we're thinking about how do we uh, sort of mold our public realm into a thing that uh, supports and accommodates everyone's needs. Absolutely. Um, so kind of segueing in and turning the table a little bit, uh, we're also interested in, you know, learning more about your co-authored article on materializing Appalachian Kentucky co-town. Oh, yeah. Um, so how did, you know, this documentary come about and what is it exactly? Yeah, so uh, this is a great story. Uh, and I think I'll touch on both the Coal Camp documentary project and the the article because they're both tied together and I, and I gotcha. really talk about one without sort of mentioning the other right. um, the first thing I, I need to give thanks to is the Walters family from Bell County uh, Mr. James Walters um, I'm getting shook up just talking about him uh, his family when I was at the center reached out and he grew up in Balkan in Pine or outside of Pineville at that time, he was quite elderly, and he had been uh, essentially playing the role of the town historian, and his family called, and this is when I was uh, the assistant director of the Appalachian Center and was working with Ann Kingsolver, uh, the, the then director, uh, and, a, and a great student who has now become a great professor, uh, Dr. Zeta Kamara, uh, was a huge part of this program project as well. Um, so at that time, one of the underlying themes that we were all sort of holding dear to our, our heart at that time was this idea of really trying to shift the narrative around, um, let's really give credit to all of people who made contributions in Appalachia uh, that we need to acknowledge and recognize because it's an interesting story, right? Um, there's this crazy time in Eastern Kentucky and, and, and the sort of coal country of Appalachia in the early 1900s to, through the 20s, where immigrants uh, really uh, became 
lively workforce, right? And we were losing that story. And at that time, there was also a, a growing anti-immigration sentiment. Uh, so at, during this time, we also did a project called Las Voces de los Apalaches, which is sort of the, the voices of Appalachia, where we focused on Latinx immigrants in the region and, and what their experience was. But as a part of that, we, we dug a little deeper into history. And we, we started to think about, you know, who are other people that we need to really bring to the forefront to acknowledge their contributions? Well, around the same time, like I mentioned, Mr. Walter's family reached out and they said, you really need to interview our dad. Uh, he has so many stories to tell. So we coordinated an oral history and his family came up to the Appalachian Center in Lexington. We had the, the studio set up. Uh, we were ready. We thought it would be, you know, an hour conversation. Six hours later, Mr. Walters is still telling stories. And every story was better than the one he just told. So after, after he left and, and we all kind of regrouped, we were, we, we were like, holy cow, this is what we're talking about. These are the stories we want people to have access to. Uh, and, and Zeta was a part of that, uh, and, 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 and King Solver, we all started to think about what could this be? Uh, and, and that's really where the idea of the Cole Camp documentary project came up because at that time, the story we heard about Balkan was that, you know, Balkan was a community that had been mined. Uh, the only thing left of the built environment was the schoolhouse that the coal company was using as their office. They allowed the families to have access to that site for an annual reunion. And, and we knew that there were a lot of other towns that were facing the same thing. Uh, and, and, and for my own culture, Memorial Day, uh, Decoration Day, whatever you call it, is the most important holiday in my family. So we knew that there was a lot of rich material and that we knew these stories needed to be told. So we started to think, and, and Zeta and I kind of headed it up, uh, and, and I could not have done it without her. Uh, and I would actually recommend following up with her and, and maybe doing an entire episode just on her own archaeology work and public archaeology work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because this, the things and the way she tells it uh, is so inspiring and eye-opening. But, but basically what we did there was we, we started to map all the coal, tam the coal camps. And I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it was around 440 or so that we were able to put on the map. We were actually able to put some new ones on the map that had kind of been lost to history. <clears throat> and each of those coal communities were then mapped. Uh, and we, we created kind of a, uh, a database for them. So we were able to, to link existing uh, oral histories or photo collections but we were also able to engage those communities and invite them to contribute to a growing collection. And as part of that, uh, we did a number of oral history and video history interviews at uh, different reunions. So um, it was that was really sort of where it started. Uh, was was from that interview, and then it built uh, with the website. And we, like I said, we continued to do that. But but if you want to explore it, it's a great site. Uh, you can you can find it on the University of Kentucky's Appalachian Center if you search for the Coal Camp Documentary Project. Um, it's very interactive. Uh, I think still taking uh, submissions, even though I'm not managing that process anymore. Uh, Zeta really does manage those day to day conversations as people submit. 
Um, but that, that's really what it was about, was trying to acknowledge those contributions of the people who shaped um, that part of our history and culture that so many of us do look back on as we define who we are in this broader world. Yeah, that's, um, I was so intrigued whenever I first came upon it. I was like, I definitely uh, want Shane to talk more about this. And I think it gives a little bit of an insight as well, not a little bit, a lot of bit actually of an insight for those people who, you know, may not be from here and are, you know, um, wondering why Appalachians are the way they are, you know, because I think that every little bit of, of, you know, events that, Appalachians have lived through, I think it kind of shapes mm-hmm. who they are, you know? And, and I think that's exactly uh, why, why I would love for you to have uh, Zeta Kamara on, because a lot of her research uh, in, in public archaeology really does work to counter some of that narrative. Uh, you know, one of the things that we often believe is that we're, we were highly isolated, or we were somehow separated from uh, uh, purchasing opportunities that, you know, everyone was poor and, and, and that sort of story. But one of the things that, that Zeta's archaeology work has exposed, uh, and, and the thing that I love to hear her talk about, is that when you actually dig into some of these landfills uh, in Jenkins or, or around Whitesburg, um, some of the, the material culture that you find, uh, it's the same high-end dishware, uh, female products, uh, that were for sale in New York City, Chicago. And, and what that tells us is that really these coal camps in terms of consumerism, uh, many times the women uh, were, were participating in that process as much, if not the same amount, as, as women in other more urban perceived connected places. So I think even, even as we you know, see ourselves as sort of isolated and different, it's always great to also sort of take a, a, another step up and think about, you know, how, well, how are we actually connected and doing so much of the same thing uh, that the rest of the country was doing? Uh, I think, I think Appalachia's story is still unfolding and, and we're still telling. Oh yeah. 100%. Um, I know that Gurney Norman has a lot of cool series at the Appalachian center. So um, I really want to have him on as well. So um, I know that I'm going to be continuing Michael's graduating, unfortunately, um, but we're going to be continuing the podcast in the fall because I'm just a junior, so um, we're going to be continuing and definitely want to bring Zeta on and then also Gurney to, you know, hear more about those Appalachian stories because I don't think that outsiders can ever have too much um, insight to what we're all about. No, and, and, and you know, one story that I, I would direct people to that Mr. Walter shared, and actually there's two that, that I would recommend. If you go to the website, go to go to Bell County, search for Balkan, B-A-L-K-A-N, and look through his stories. Uh, there's two. One is a story about how uh, the young men who had just came back from the war uh, chased the KKK away from their community, uh, who had came there to harass uh, some of the immigrants. Uh, and another story, he was also a band director, so he, was, he had amazing sort of tonality. And in one of the videos, he replicates the work bell uh, that that would that like the steam bell that would ring over the community twice a day when the shifts would change. Just two remarkable pieces uh, from that specific collection that I would uh, highly recommend people check out. 
yeah, for sure. Um, and I will. Be that project sounds incredible. I mean, I think that that's super important to let people know, you know, what the history actually was and how rich it is. And, you know, your comments about finding things that, you know, the affluent societies where people normally associate wealth and, and, you know, experience and, and all these, you know, lavishness, the fact that those things were found in these seemingly poor dilapidated coal camps is just an interesting contrast that I don't think a lot of people get. Um, and so I think that's, that's a really cool, a really cool project. And, and thanks for doing that. Well, I, I'm glad that, that folks find interest in it. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons, right? You never know uh, with these projects, if there's an audience. Um, I will say that, you know, one of the other pieces that did come out of that for many, for many years while we were doing that project, I would carry around printed off copies of the 1920 census in particular for Harlan County. And uh, at that same time, nationally, there was a, a huge upswell of anti-immigration sentiment. So I, I would usually keep those, those documents on hand just in case something like that bubbled up and I needed an opportunity to sort of uh, counter it. Uh, I would often share and show uh, Harlan County, you know, I, I would show folks, the 38 different countries or, or nationalities that uh, sort of created the workforce there. I'd pull out sheets of the, the, the census that showed Spanish speaking Mexican coal miners or store operators that were operating in 1920 in Harlem and remind folks that it is in fact those immigrants that sacrificed as much as any sort of white Appalachian settler to help define who we are. And, um, that's always been important to me to, to make sure that the acknowledgement of, of folks who contribute uh, sort of remains present. That's awesome. So we want to pivot just to, uh, here for a minute. Um, you know, you mentioned it earlier about, you know, the impact of COVID-19 and what that's posing to, you know, your colleagues and other people in your profession. Can you talk a little bit more about what, you know, this whole situation is going to, do to shape the landscape of, of city planning and, and, you know, community organizing in the future um, or things you've seen so far, I mean, even now. Yeah. I, I, I think this is the question on everyone's mind right now. And um, while we don't know what the future holds, I think we're shaping that right now. Um, what I like to remind folks is we don't have best practices for this stuff. Um, there, there aren't many living, if any, living humans who have ever rebuilt an economy after a global pandemic. You, you can't find that resource. Um, I mean, there, are, there will always be things that we need to continue doing, right? Great hygiene, being good neighbors, supporting local, that sort of thing. Um, but I, but it, when we think about what, what is in store for downtowns and what's in store for kind of urban planning in general, I think we have to also acknowledge that some folks are going to come out of this a little shaken. Uh, not everyone's going to reemerge uh, at the same time. Uh, I know personally for me, I'm an extrovert. I love being around people. Absolutely. And, and I'm not sure if I'm ready necessarily to be out there and be around people. In particular, now that there's such a weird partisanship around the fact that some people are wearing masks. Um, like that's, that's just crazy to me. And, and, and I don't feel like going out and being harassed for taking a public health measure that does not impact you at all. Like so I, I think there's a lot of things that, that we need to be thinking about. The one that uh, most folks may be overlooking that is going to be a tsunami in the next few months is, is local government budgets. Uh, as the fiscal year rolls uh, into June, July, and we start to see the impact of lost tax revenues, um, I think we're going to see that trickle into local budgets. Um, 
What does that mean? I don't know. Those decisions haven't been made locally yet, right? Um, it could mean reduced services, reduced paving. Um, we just don't know. Uh, reduced tourism budgets with less people staying in hotels and eating at restaurants. Um, so I, I think that's going to be a big thing that people are going to have to face. Um, but in terms of day-to-day -day operation, you know, we, we are seeing a lot of businesses pivot, right? They're, they're creating virtual storefronts. Um, they're, if they're a restaurant, they may be shifting to um, online ordering, street-side, curbside pickup, adding delivery options, maybe doing special deliveries, coordinating with people who maybe go into a different community. I've seen that happen. Um, but I, I, I think it's undefined right now. Uh, we know that folks are going to be probably desiring more space, more personal space. Um, may have to rethink um, what that looks like in, in terms of seating in, ter in, in, in the interior of buildings, but also, you know, how close are benches uh, outside? Uh, do we have enough space? Um, so I think, I think we're going to see some dramatic shifts uh, moving, moving into sort of post-COVID uh, new reality. Um, None of it looks great. Um, but what I will say is I, I will remind people, I think there's some things that, that we're probably experiencing right now that we should reflect on and think about the infrastructure and the resources, the things that we really love right now or the things may, we may be seeing value in and reassess how we, re, how we prioritize those. Um, I know, for example, here in Kentucky, now that many parks are closed, um, one of the things that I have noticed is that sidewalks, in particular in neighborhoods, are getting used a lot. Um, and, I, and I've started to think about the sidewalks here in Berea as perhaps maybe the best public park we have access to now. Um, so I think, for instance, you know, if you think about sidewalks, this may be a great time to think, you know, what, can, what sorts of ways can we amplify our public infrastructure like that to provide more access in a safe way as we do reemerge. Um, I think as a part of that, uh, in particular in bigger cities, uh, you're, you're gonna hear people talking about having a street diet or going on a street diet. You know, now that cars aren't on the roads and, and people are on the roads, mm -hmm. there are places who are considering, you know, temporary closing uh, of car access and maybe expanding the, the places where restaurants can put their outdoor dining. Uh, to provide more space. Like again, you know, like I said, that's, that's happening in some bigger urban areas. I haven't heard anyone talking about that necessarily in Eastern Kentucky. Um, but, but what I hope comes out of this is some pragmatic solutions. Uh, I hope we can find ways to um, sort of show a little solidarity uh, with our other community members who may not have it as well off. Uh, one of the things that I've been suggesting is maybe this spring ditch that beautification project you know, and go with a foodification project. Yeah. Right. You know, in, instead of planting those beautiful flowers and annuals uh, in your, in your planters or at your entryways or gateways to your community, think, think about flowering edibles or, or vegetables. Um, you know, it, it I, I can just imagine uh, what it would look like if there was a decentralized network of, of little gardens, right. In a community in particular, as we're facing potential food challenges, right. Uh, we, we don't know. Uh, but I think, you know, acts like that, uh, where solidarity is, is really exemplified and, and people are coming together, uh, is what we all need. Uh, I think the challenge is uh, who's going to step up, who's going to do it, 
and can we do it together? Yeah, and I think that um, this situation is definitely speaking to the solidarity of Appalachians because I know in Hazard alone, um, they've been doing small contests of, I believe it's like if you eat out at five local restaurants and then you bring us your five receipts and we'll put your name in a drawing and you'll get a $40 gift card or something like that for one of those local restaurants. Yeah. So, so we're seeing some really innovative, cool stuff, right? So there's been the bingo cards where people are you yes. know, doing exactly what you said, right? There's also been programs through local, local organizations where they may raise money and, and Laurel County, they raised money. They bought gift cards from the local businesses and then they sold them to the public at a discounted rate. So I think it was maybe they bought a $25 card, sold it for 15 to the public. So they didn't get all their money back, but they gave the, the public a discount, right? So you're, you're still funneling money back to those businesses. You know, it, it's related to people putting out the teddy bears for when, when parents are walking the kids, right? These teddy bear scavenger hunts or doing sidewalk art with, with words of affirmation. Uh, you got this. Uh, we're in it together. You know, Team Kentucky. Um, there, there, I think we have seen some amazing uh, examples of people being good neighbors. Yeah. And I think I've said this in the last three podcasts that we filmed, but could not be more thankful for our governor um, and the way that he is handling this. And I think that, you know, Kentucky has always been about, you know, that solidarity and standing together. But now more than ever, when we need that, it really, it's really come to light. And so, you know, mm -hmm. I've seen Anytime there's a new small business that opens up, there are always people on social media that are like, you should try this. But now that it's like almost a difference of putting food on the table or not for those business owners, I think that there have just been such an influx of those amount of people sharing to support those local businesses. So I just think that's so awesome. Yeah, it, it has been amazing uh, to see. It really has. Which, I mean, I may be biased, but I think that Kentucky is the best state, and the best Commonwealth. And um, we, we are most certainly blessed right now to have uh, incredible leadership. Absolutely. Uh, I think no matter what position you fall in terms of partisanship, you can't deny um, his levelness, his steadiness, uh, his compassion, his empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he's just been a, a great steadfast leader that I think many of us uh, – could take a page out of his book and, and, and using our own uh, interactions. Yeah. Um, my boyfriend's father is actually security for um, Andy. And, you know, he has told me countless times, cause he knows I'm a political science major. So I just love all things politics um, sometimes, unfortunately, but so, you know, he is just always sharing stories about how he's so, serene and he'll go on walks and just peer and think and it's very like majestic but thoughtful and you can tell that you know his job doesn't end at 6 p.m when he gets off facebook live it's like he's constantly carrying this load with him that um and like you can definitely see it you know um so he, he, he's essentially exemplifying as a child what i thought a politician should be that public servant, the servant leader, right? But as I grew up, you started to see it more as a business, you know, and especially at that state, that high state level or in, in the federal government. Um, and, and he does, he, it's a, he's almost like a throwback politician in terms of his uh, 
the things like you were just saying that he's that he's doing, you know, whether it be taking a walk and reflecting, you know, I, I don't see other folks doing that, I, w- I will say. Absolutely. Um, so kind of wrapping uh, this is like our last real question of, do you have any tips for listeners, um, AKA me, um, who may be interested in pursuing a career in downtown revitalization in Appalachia? Yeah, I, I think uh, what, what I tell people first, first and foremost, <clears throat> is, uh, and, and this may be counterintuitive to, to what some folks believe, but this is what I believe because this is what worked for me. It's my experience. Find something that you love and study it. And, and if you love it enough, you will find where it fits in to the thing that you're passionate about. You know, for example, if you're a political science major and one of the things that you're interested in is how people communicate or how messages disseminate or how people adopt policy, there's a place for you in urban planning or community development or downtown revitalization. Um, you may go the route of a uh, commissioner who helps frame or, or, or create new ordinances, like some of the folks that you know in Perry County, right? They have done amazing work recently uh, creating and reaffirming ordinances. Uh, and none of them probably thought that they were going to be doing urban revitalization uh, when they started their careers doing the thing they were doing. Right. First, I would say there's, there's a place for everybody because it is so multidisciplinary. You know, we don't have computers doing this, though there are some folks that do the analysis, right? Uh, so urban planning and revitalization takes a lot of stuff. Uh, so if you're an artist, there, there are opportunities uh, to help illustrate uh, images around what uh, different conditions could be. One of the most inspiring things uh, for folks to see, especially if, if it's hard to imagine what the opportunities for a vacant building could be, you are presented with beautiful color illustrations of what that vision is, that's impactful. Uh, If you're data analysis, if you're a statistician, there's a place for you in the field. Um, If if you love mapping or GIS, um, there's a place for you. If, If you're a sociologist and you love people and you love figuring out what makes people tick and why they do things or think things, there's a role for you. Um, what I would recommend is, is study, especially if you think about this as an academic trajectory, if you don't want to teach in the academy and you want to practice, I would suggest uh, an undergraduate degree in the thing you're passionate about. Uh, and, and then as you start to look at grad school, that, that would be a great time to start to focus and hone in on the few pieces in uh, urban planning or regional planning or community development that you may want to seek out. What I will remind folks is the University of Kentucky has a great program, uh, the Community and Leadership Development Program, Mm -hmm. that prepares students uh, for nonprofit world, for for agency work. Um, It is a great stepping stone. While it may not be a planning degree, all of the pieces are there to create a community development or a planner. Uh, so, you know, for someone like you who may be looking and then they, they find the closest program, say, at the University of Cincinnati that's, that has a named planning program, I would suggest they, they look at programs like the, the leadership development program at UK um, because it, it, while it may not give you everything, it'll give you the things that are really important to work with people and to help uh, uh, sort of develop strategies 
because one of the things planners do, you know, no planner should ever approach a community and say, hey, I've got the golden, I've got the golden bullet. We're going to, I'm going to solve your problem. Uh, really what it's about is how do we uh, sort of support that community or those folks to, uh, to, to share their own solutions and then to help think about how do you operationalize those solutions? Who does it? How do you fund it? What's the timeline? What does it look like? And help articulate it in a digestible way. That's what, you know, what is at the heart of it. Now, planning is a very diverse field. Um, you know, you, you could plan just uh, transportation or red lights or highway capacity. You could plan pedestrian uh, access. You could be a landscape architect. You could be a safety planner working to map uh, violent incidences for the police to, to start to think about interventions or solutions. Um, floodplain management. I mean, there are literally a, an infinite amount of ways, I would say, to enter the field and, and do what you're passionate about. For me, that early uh, watershed development experience as a VISTA was life-changing. Uh, it, it really was. And for folks who were thinking about a career path, I, I would most certainly also plug the AmeriCorps VISTA program as a great way either between undergrad and graduate or maybe even after your graduate program uh, to, to really dive into it in a way that is service oriented. Uh, it puts others before you and, and it allows you a little bit of flexibility to try and fail things. Um, because that's how we learn. Um, so, you know, I, I think all of that said, uh, there's a lot of ways to enter the field and a lot of ways to contribute. Yeah, well, um, keep your eyes out for an application with my name on it because I just texted Michael and I was like, Michael, I want to work for this man. Uh, <laughs> truly. Uh, but yeah, it's refreshing to know that there's, you know, so many outlets and ways in because I'm going to be honest, I've had a lot of time to think while being at home. And so I'm like, what if I chose the wrong, <laughs> the wrong field to go into? But so it's good to know that it's not, it's not too late to. Uh, no. And, and Stacy, just remember, you know, you may be doing awesome work, but does your title really matter? If your titles say, you know, if your title may not, if you're in, if you're working in Eastern Kentucky, your title is not going to say urban planner. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is absolutely correct. And I know people that are doing urban planning that that's not their title. So refreshing to know. Um, yeah. So, well, again, thank you so much, Shane, for taking the time out of your day and speaking with us. This has been my favorite podcast that we've done. No offense to everybody else, but um, this is like right up my alley. <laughs> um, so we just want to take the time to plug, you know, any projects that you have going on or any, you know, last comments that you want to throw in. Yeah. So I, I think uh, there's a couple of things that I'll, Two in particular that I want to throw in. One is I, I want to plug the, the Southeast Kentucky Downtown Business Stimulus Fund um, because this has been uh, an, an amazing uh, process that I've been a part of for the last six weeks. And I, and I think the impact that, that the partners that we're working with and their ability to, to fundraise and prioritize an immediate quick response to local businesses has been something incredibly fulfilling for me. Um, so as, as a part of that, you know, I thought I would just share a, a, a simple little update on what that fund has done, just as a shout out to, to the awesome folks at um, Appalachian Impact Fund, the Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky, Invest 606, and the James Brand Ground Foundation. Um, so, so really, in all, the, the fund that we've been managing uh, as a part of this uh, to date 
has, has funded 153 grants ranging from 600 to $3,000. And we have sent out the door over $385,000 to 60% female owned business owners in 23 counties in Eastern Kentucky. Oh my goodness. As a part of that fund, we received over 500 applications equaling probably a million and a half in requests. Uh, so, so one of the things that I do want to plug is that effort. And if your passion uh, is Appalachia, please, please, please consider donating to this fund. Know that it, it goes directly to business owners and, and you can fund this. Um, so check out the Foundation for Appalachia, Kentucky. Uh, they have it on their website. They have it on their Facebook page. Uh, put your money where your mouth is and help these small businesses. That's the first thing I want to say. The other is, um, as, as we move into this engagement around uh, virtual spaces, it's difficult to bring people together. Uh, and, and we've all been kind of overloaded recently with virtual things. Um, but, but there is a, a great effort sort of bubbling up uh, with an organization of, of regional partners called What's Next East Kentucky that SEDIC is a part of, along with the Brushy Fork Institute and Mason and others. Um, but we'll be hosting a, uh, another, a second Community Connections virtual event where we're specifically talking about the potential impact of local budgets on these topics that we've discussed today. So I, I would invite you, Stacy, to join that uh, as a student who may be interested to hear what folks are really facing. Um, but I would invite anyone who is in this sort of urban ecosystem or downtown ecosystem to join that call. Uh, you can also find that on Facebook if you search What's Next East Kentucky. Um, uh, get on there, get registered, sign up. Uh, those, are, those are the two things that I want to leave people with. Um, but, but the last thing, I, I just want to echo uh, Governor Andy Bashir and say, uh, now is not the time to play divisiveness. Uh, now is not the time to be picky, to be uh, uh, bitter. Uh, Now's the time to come together, to be good neighbors. If there was ever a time to create the places we want to see, uh, now's the time to, to take our image and start working on it. Um, so get out there, do it, um, be the change, right? That, that's what they say, that's what the bumper sticker says, right? <laughs> Absolutely, well, um, yes, definitely echoing that sentiment on Governor Bashir, and just thank you for all the work that you're doing and um, really being a voice and not only a voice, but, you know, talking the talk and walking the walk for Appalachians everywhere in the work that you're doing. Um, and again, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. And we really appreciate you. And yeah. Thanks for talking with us. It's been great. We've learned so much and hopefully all of our listeners out there will pick up a few new pieces of information and a better understanding of the awesome work that you do. So thanks for spending time with us today. Yeah. And if anybody ever needs to reach out, uh, contact me. Uh, you can reach me at Shane, S H A N E dot Barton, B A R T O N boy as you know, B as in boy. And, uh, at UKY.edu, send me an email. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're very quick at replying to emails. I think that you replied to me within an hour and I was very impressed. <laughs> so, well, I, I, I don't like having emails lingering out there. So I try, I try to, uh, I try to do what I expect, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here and thank you to all of our listeners. And we've got one more episode this semester. So in the meantime, I'm Stacy. And I'm Michael. 
and we'll and we'll holler at you later (laughs) we're so bad at that over zoom but it's okay we say that every podcast and i think that our listeners just know at this point that's not gonna be good but uh (laughs) yeah thank you all again for being here and y'all have a great rest of your day